Welcome to Surroundscapes, an audio and video podcast series featuring a diverse collection of interviews with thought leaders from around the world, addressing the general subject of the future of business. This content is curated by Blue Sound Professional and focuses on the role of the oral and visual senses in creating unique, delightful and compelling experiences to stimulate business. This second series of Surroundscapes is focused on the future of the workplace. As a part of this, for this episode, I'd like to introduce Joseph Hargrave, who's Associate Director of uh, the Foresight Team at Arup. Joseph's talking to us from London, so welcome, Joseph. Thank you. Welcome. To start with, can can you give us a little bit of background on, on Arup for those people that don't know who Arup are and what you do? Sure. Um, so Arab is a global um, professional services firm that really focuses on the built environment. Um, so we do the classical engineering services from structural engineering to mechanical engineering to electrical engineering to planning and architecture and really all sorts of advisory around how buildings, cities and spaces are designed all the way from the macro scale design of cities to the micro scale the design of AV systems in buildings, for example. Am I right in saying that, that Arup started originally as a structural engineering company and you built kind of all, literally hundreds of disciplines on, on top of that? Yes, the firm was uh, founded in the late 40s by Sir Ova Arup and uh, he originally was a, a structural engineer but also a philosopher. And uh, his, you know, the first famous project was, of course, the Sydney Opera House. And since those um, early uh, activities of the firm, it's really diversified into all kinds of other things related to to the built environment, architecture, planning, uh, the various engineering disciplines. And now we're around 15,000 people with a huge diversity of, of projects and work way beyond what we used to do in the early years of the firm, but still very much driven by values of, of doing good work, doing excellent work and uh, supporting a more sustainable future. I think the structure of the company is a little strange. It seems to me, and this, this is just my perspective, it almost sits in between being a commercial company and kind of a university. It's got almost a collegiate feel in some ways. Yeah, I, I, perhaps the university is not the right term, but we are owned by a trust on behalf of the employees. So it's kind of uh, the model of an employee-owned uh, company. Uh, so each employee owns a certain number of shares, and the number of shares you own is based on your level of seniority and your years of service with the firm. Um, those shares are non-tradable, so you, you own the shares while you're working uh, as part of the company, and that essentially determines um, how much profit share or bonus you might get uh, and, and so forth. But what that means is that um, your um, rewards package is closely linked to the overall performance of the firm and not necessarily the performance of you as an individual. And so it does create a lot of altruistic behavior where if I support my colleagues in East Asia or in South Africa or in any other places and, and they are more successful through my support, then it also positively benefits my bottom line. And so it is quite collaborative. Of course, there's still a degree of competition because people compete to get promoted and so forth. But in general, it's, it is a very collaborative environment and we do try to support each other as colleagues quite a lot. That comes through in dealing with Arup. I've, I've dealt with Arup for many years now with part of Arup that's an AV consultant um, in relatively large installations around the world from 
Olympic venues down. And I've always been impressed by the the quality of thinking that goes on uh, within our, particularly within the uh, AV department. An example of that is the sound labs that Arup have around the world that enable Arup to actually build the acoustic uh, environment of a particular building before the building's even built, which addresses a real challenge in the audio industry, which is it's very difficult to let your customer know what something's going to sound like until it's built and it's too late. Yeah, the sound labs are absolutely fantastic and they're a great experience, not just for um, professionals or for clients, but also for, if you like, the general public and others who want to experience the, uh, if you like, the impact of, of a design. So, for example, the, the, the role of different materials in a, in a, in a concert hall or um, the impact of a new development of uh, wind farms on, on the local neighborhood or, um, as the case is, for example, the design of a new rail line and how that might impact the local community in terms of noise levels. So that's a fantastic way to really engage people around um, a design or the options around the design uh, before we actually go into the actual uh, building and construction of things. And uh, this is, of course, part of this broader trend which we are seeing, which is impacting the AV industry, but also the broader kind of built environment and design community. And that is, in many ways, the, the continued digitalization of what we're doing. And we are still, in many ways, at the beginning of that transformation and revolution. And it is playing also an increasing role for us as a firm. What does digital actually mean for how we design in the future, how we engage with our clients and the type of services that we can deliver? That's a big question for us at the moment and one that we're slowly trying to answer. Mm-hmm. As I mentioned in the introduction, you're the associate director of the Foresight division or team. And I've always been both impressed and intrigued by this, this team of people that sits kind of outside most of the disciplines in Arab and looks at at the large trends that are affecting our world. So can you tell us a little bit about the team and its work? Yes, so we're in many ways um, a team of generalists that act as integrators across the firm. Um, Foresight essentially just refers to a set of techniques, practices, methods designed to explore the future and think about the future, such as future trends and future scenarios, future visions and so forth. So the future is the common denominator here. And uh, as a consequence, our team really looks at the future of all kinds of themes and, and areas related to the general practice of Arab. So we explore the future of cities or the future of specific sectors within them, such as the waste sector or energy sector uh, or water sector. Or we look at the future of specific typologies, such as the future of the workplace or the future of universities um, or the future of stations. And our role there is really to integrate various points of view and bring people together to have these conversations about change so that we get a better sense of what the possible pathways into the future are and what they consequently mean for us. Because uh, it's relatively easy actually to identify what is changing or what the key trends are. We all know that the aging population, technology transformation, uh, climate change are shaping our future. But the hard thing is really to contextualize what it means for us. So what does all of this mean for a future workplace or a future station design and so forth? And this is then really the role of our team is to, first of all, map out the change for any given context or project, and then contextualize what it really means for the organization in terms of design choices, or investments or strategy decisions and so forth. 
The team is full of people from different backgrounds. We have anything from physicists to rocket scientists. My background is in biology. We have social scientists. So it's really this, uh, if you like, this set of diverse views which then adds another layer of analysis and, and conversation to other project teams across Arab, which are typically staffed by specialists, whether you're a specialist in certain materials or a specialist in structural engineering or a specialist in planning. Our role is then, I guess, to sit above that or to act as an integrator across those disciplines and then to add that future lens to all of our conversations. Because if you're working in the built environment or perhaps almost any industry, everything you're doing now is really about shaping the future and making decisions about the future. If you design a piece of infrastructure, it's going to be completed perhaps in 10 years' time and operational for another 30 and 40. So as a consequence, we by default always have to think about the future if we want to make sure that we make better decisions today. Yeah, I, I agree with that. But I also see in a lot of businesses, it's tough to pull out and take a, a, a wider view. People get very, very caught up in day-to-day -day business in the job they're doing at the time. And it's a very, very easy thing to do because most, most people are really busy and, and you come into work every day, you do your work, and, and that ability to, to draw back and, and think about, as you say, the future rather than, and the future being 10, 20, 30, 40 years rather than you know, a week, two weeks, a month, um, I think is a really, really powerful tool for current. I mean, there's a few things to to consider. First of all, I guess for us as a firm, it, it also adds a layer of differentiation. So if we can go to the client with a typical offering around planning or building design or any other types of professional services and say, oh, and by the way, we've got a team here that can also, in a structured way, explore what trends might be impacting your project. And as a consequence, we can deliver something that is of higher quality or, or, or enables a better outcome. So um, we actively try to promote that as part of our broader service offering to you know, do something slightly different or better or however you want to define that. The other thing to recognize is that um, the existence of a team like ours is by no means guaranteed or, or, or standard, like you say. It is a bit of a luxury. It can survive and thrive inside of a firm like Arab because we have a certain culture and we have a certain ownership model, as we've already discussed. And we have a, a certain amount of money that we invest in research and the development of our people because it is part of the identity and brand that we are selling to our clients. Um, if you look across industries, though, there is quite a few firms that now employ foresight people or staff within their firms or that um, access those type of services as, as a consulting offering. I guess the thing to recognize there is that it can vary quite a bit based on the purpose of that interaction. Sometimes it is done to identify trends and understand where a firm should invest into the future, which is a common practice, or where they should research more in the future. Sometimes it's linked to strategic decisions where a firm might be undergoing a broader transformation process and force that can then be one of those layers of consulting that can happen as part of that. And some companies are naturally in the game of innovation. And if you're in the game of innovation and coming up with new products and services, those ideas somehow have to be generated and have to be assessed. And foresight can be a key part of that process. There's, for example, quite a few chemical companies who have big foresight teams because they recognize that understanding trends within a certain sector or domain is the first step to identify 
what future demand patterns might look like or what future growth fields could be. And as a consequence, they then employ foresight in quite a structured way to come up with these ideas, assess the value of those ideas, and then take that forward into more standard product innovation processes, if you like. Hmm. Interesting. So I originally, my first degree was in chemistry. So it was interesting to hear you talk about foresight being used. <laughs> Within chemical companies, I worked for a couple of oil companies early on. You mentioned you, your backgrounds in biology, but can you give us some more details of your background and what led you into this career in, in foresight? Yes, so my first degree was in biology, and I simply chose that subject because I was interested in it. So there wasn't any uh, grand strategy behind that at all, if you like. Um, and at the time, I was very much focused on um yeah, evolutionary theory, um, population dynamics, uh, and later on I had a bit of a focus on on agriculture and uh, global food production. But I came out of that degree following a few internships with a clear view of not wanting to work in that sector, um, but instead wanting to do something else, which was fine. And so one of the options that was open to me after that degree was an MSc. And there was an MSc at Manchester Business School, which at the time was called Science and Technology Management, but which in essence was uh, to a large degree about technology change, innovation, and, and foresight. Manchester Business School was at the time one of the universities leading really, if you like, in the academic space on, on, on foresight. And curiously, that was also the time I realized that my biology degree was actually not useless, but that a lot of technological change follows evolutionary principles. And that this idea of systems thinking and systems dynamic and survival of the fittest and dominant design, all of these theories which emerge uh, in many ways from, from the space of biology can also be applied to how our technologies evolve and how economies evolve. And so this idea of systems thinking actually turned out to be quite quite useful and the degree of biology turned out to be quite useful for my, for my later career. So degree in biology, which led me to kind of systems thinking and understanding how systems evolve over time. And then the master's at Manchester, which was really a lot more focused on how technology and economies evolve. And my dissertation during that MSc was on the future of the smart home, which at the time was still a relatively new concept. And there was, of course, a lot in there around AV technology and how you know, we were looking at uh, much more holistic systems at the time. The idea of plug and play wasn't quite as well defined uh, than it is now. And just exploring what role technology adoption could play in the home, what technologies could be um, applied and, and how that kind of field could evolve over time. And so that was my master's, uh, which exposed me to foresight for the first time. And then I really started my career at a boutique management consultancy in Cologne in Germany called uh, Zpunkt. Uh, which is Z and then the German word for dot, which is really, um, yeah, they're, they're focused on providing foresight services for the German industrial sector with a strong focus on you know, chemical companies, energy companies, uh, automotive, and then a whole range of other, other sectors in between. And uh, being German, they're very process driven, very method driven. And I learned a great deal there about how to do foresight from a method standpoint and perspective. And then due to, yeah, due to family reasons, due to meeting my wife, um, I, I had to move to the UK and wanted to move to the UK. And, and so I, I switched my career and set up my own company for a few years, working predominantly freelance for the, the UK government on foresight initiatives at that time for, for DEFRA, which was the Department for Food and Rural Affairs, looking at the future of food and farming and so forth, which closed the loop again a little bit on my biology degree did that for a few years, had a few other clients and 
finally found Arup and uh, freelanced there for half a year and then a position opened up and uh, yeah so now I've been there for nearly nine years starting off as a contractor and uh, slowly working my way through the ranks if you like to to now be leading the global foresight uh, function for the firm. Wow that's a really interesting background and and uh, there's some commonality. I, I almost went into agriculture before I went into chemistry and, and there's a particular rabbit hole that we could disappear down. As you mentioned the value of biology in technology and trends now, it immediately made me think of the work of people like Mary Oxman and Alexandra Daisy Ginsburg and, and people like that and the general topic of the natural world and and the the world of technology melding yes um, and I, I think we're in many ways at a i think we have to go into that rabbit hole for a second because i i think in many ways we're at the beginning of something there where i, I think biology as a practice will start to play a much greater role for many aspects of our professional lives including the built environment and design because um first of all the idea of biomimicry is coming back time and time again as, as a way of learning what good design looks like and secondly if we think about aspects such as the circular economy and new design approaches that take a more ecological focus and a more nature-based focus in order to achieve some of the sustainability goals that we want to achieve biology naturally has to play a significant part in that and so it's quite an exciting time to have a biology background if you like <laughs> yeah I, I, I can only imagine and that biomimicry circular economy the common friend that we have, Salome Gaillard, while she was at Arup, was doing work on on 3D printed structural members um, mimicking yes. natural natural shapes, and that was fascinating work. Yeah, she was one of the pioneers, and yeah, yeah, fantastic work. Um, so let's go on and talk about the future of the workplace, because Arup a number of years ago produced a paper that I loved called uh, "The Living Workplace," that I think you had something to do with. And so this concept of the workplace of the future and the work that Foresight have been doing in thinking about that is something that's going on for a long time. Yes, I mean, the future of work and the future of workplaces has been quite a significant part of my um, years um, at Arab to date, if you like. Um, one of the early advisory projects was for the European Investment Bank, looking at their future um, workplace design and operation. And we've consequently worked for other banks and institutional clients to help them understand what, what the future of work looks like. And of course, you know, technology is, is always a, a core part of that, that debate. And now, if you like, this idea of talking about the future of work has, has uh, in, the need for that has increased further due to the COVID-19 pandemic, where our existing model of what work is or should be and, and the spaces associated with it are, are, are so much being questioned um, that it's important to really have that debate of what the future of work should look like and what, what role spaces and technology um, um, play in that and so it, it's definitely something that that we've looked at um, quite a bit recently the way I guess at, at a fundamental level the way we're exploring this is always through this trilogy of people technology and spaces and they are of equal importance to each other and it's really about the interactions between the three because work has already in the past decades moved away from being focused on a fixed space such as the desk in an office to being much more something that is an ecosystem of spaces and an ecosystem of technologies and an ecosystem of interactions so it's become much more fluid and much more diverse 
and what work and workplaces mean for one person it can be very very different to what it means to another person based on if you like your personal portfolio of how you deliver your work when it comes to the spaces you occupy and use and the technologies you occupy and use and and the combinations and the unique combinations that create so it's a very very interesting question and so many models have been kind of um, pushed and and tried there over the time from you know, the cellular offices to the open plan. And now we're moving much more towards this idea of landscapes within buildings, which give a bit more free choice for how people work and, and, and when they work and how they utilize different spaces for different tasks. Because I think what we're now recognizing as, as designers and creators of workplaces is that it's almost impossible to predict what type of space people really want and, and what they need and how they're going to use it. So all you can do really is create something that is flexible, that is adaptable and that can change over time and that caters for a broad variety of uses and user needs. And that is really, you know, work in itself and the processes of work. And then, of course, there's broader trends happening around building design and, and the function of buildings and the expectations of buildings, which are perhaps not unique to work, but which play a huge role in how, again, workplaces are delivered. And one that is perhaps of big interest to anyone from the AV industry is this idea of healthy spaces. And, and, and healthy offices and, and what it means to create buildings that um, have a positive impact on the people that occupy them rather than a negative one in terms of health consequences, for example. And so some of those things were already happening and changing at quite a rapid pace over the last few years. And the pandemic has really you know, started to question some of that and change some of that. And we're in, in a bit of a limbo phase, if you like, where we're not quite sure what the new normal will look like because we're definitely not in the new normal yet. The new normal will only emerge once the pandemic has been overcome and we all find a new equilibrium around how we want to work as individuals, for example, the relationship between the home and the work. And as a consequence, what, what services and spaces, uh, technologies then actually provide to their employees. So there's lots of open questions there, if you like, that we can explore. Mm. Yeah, I love that that. Uh, term landscape for work because in workplaces in the industrial age seem to be very like you were a cog in a machine and and as we moved more into the information age and and the way that work was was began to be questioned you know the the fact that that you didn't necessarily need to come into an office every day and sit in neat rows or or neat cubicles for everything you did And that wasn't actually the most effective way of doing it. You also mentioned this concept of workspaces that are built for change and and moving and and they're they're flexible. Do you see the Google headquarters designed by by, uh, Heatherwick and um, is it Bjark Ingels that was doing it with with Thomas Heatherwick? Yes. Yeah. This really just seems to be just like a, a... enclosure into which Google can put different things and change them around. Is that the sort of thing you're talking about on the larger scale? Yeah, although I would be hesitant about giving specific examples with this because it again, work and workplaces mean um, different things for different organizations. And it's it's the, the one of the reasons for that is is the broader driver of change here, which is that workplaces have become much more important tools as part of corporate strategy. So while in the in the past it might have been, you know, an expenditure, necessary expenditure to to keep people um, housed and give them a space to work, now the role of workplaces is much more strategic. 
uh, it's important in, in the context of worker retention and attraction. Uh, it's important in the context of uh, client relationships and client engagement. It's important in the context of getting the most out of your employees and facilitating innovation and collaboration and so forth. So as the strategic importance has increased, so has, um, if you like, the investments and research and, and focus on what good workplace design looks like. And so suddenly we have a much broader set of uh, requirements for workplaces and we have a much broader set of drivers that impact what good design looks like and so um, in many ways this is quite an exciting time because I sometimes call it it's the clarity that's causing the age of complexity so we know much more about what good design should be but as a consequence it's getting much harder to deliver good design because you know the demands and complexity of what is expected is is is, is always increasing and so perhaps if we think about you know what that could mean for AV for a second um, well, the first thing, Arab is a nice example again, is that I think in a lot of offices that also act as corporate headquarters, there's now a greater design for what you might call specialist or differentiating spaces, such as, for example, a sound lab or immersive environments or anything that can give a certain experience to a client who might be visiting or someone else who might be visiting, such as a stakeholder. And so there's now these tactical or specialist spaces being built inside of offices, which um, create a differentiator for the firm, which are spatial experiences that are enabled through AV. Um, the other thing that is happening, which is, again, technology related, is that, like I said earlier, the demand for health and well-being in offices is increasing. Mm -hmm. So as a consequence, the um, utilization of sensors to monitor carbon dioxide levels or levels of pollutant to better understand correct light levels for employees to get um, the circadian rhythm right or to ensure that light levels are, are at a healthy level and so forth is all um, is all expanding um quite rapidly and then thirdly of course this idea of flexibility and adaptability is 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 resulting in much more mobile plug and play uh, and adaptable technology in the workplace which again is is a big opportunity and, and and challenge for the av industry to meet so lots of these um if you like broader trends around strategic spaces and health and well-being and flexibility and adaptation then have quite significant impacts on the opportunities that are emerging for the av industry which i think is really interesting yeah i do, I do too we, we were talking before we started recording about um about adidas and um I've done a fair bit of work with Adidas, and, and they have this headquarters in Herzenaurach in Germany. And listening to you talk about how pe how companies are using workplaces to entice employees and clients, certainly that's something that, that Adidas look at proactively to try and get some of the world's best designers into this small village in Germany. And, and it's fascinating working with them on that. But you also mentioned this this healthy workspace or biophilic um, workspace, and within the AV industry, that is that has become something of a topic. There's this biophilic sound masking now that that uh, people are beginning to put in to mm. replace more conventional noise based sound masking. Is that something that you're working with? I haven't engaged with that um, specific area of focus or, or solution, but I mean, as a firm, we are um, very interested in in the future role of the Internet of Things um, mm. with, within the workplace environment. And so one of the things that we've been working on is the Internet of Things desk, 
which combines uh, sensors, uh, plug-and-play technologies, uh, circadian lighting, and so forth in a, in a kind of desk-based package to really try to understand how also various um, parts of furniture and various components in the workplace might evolve going forward and what that means for the type of services and interactions we can deliver for, for staff and employees and, and, and clients in the future. Um, so that's that's definitely something we're looking at. And sound and sound environments, I think, yeah, are again of, of, of increased importance. It's It's been quite interesting now that the offices, many offices are reopening, um, the sound environment in offices at the moment is very different to what it used to be. It used to be a much more buzzing environment where people would interact all the time. Now, due to social distancing, for example, in the Arab workplace, people are much more quiet overall. And as a consequence, it's much easier to be distracted by someone who is talking loudly on the phone. So the new reality of how we're working at the moment, at present, in the middle of the pandemic inside of workplaces is, is again, causing new challenges for how technology and systems and, uh, and designs actually respond to these these constantly changing needs, uh, you know, as illustrated through the current current situation. I was going to come on to 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 this and the the changes that have been wrought by this pandemic. One of the things that we've been noticing is a lot of trends that were already happening have been accelerated by this pandemic. So in the retail and hospitality space. The idea of um, online shopping rather than brick and mortar shopping, the idea of food delivery rather than going to a restaurant, they're both trends that have been accelerated by this pandemic. And in the workspace, a trend that seems to have been accelerated is that of um, teleworking, of not necessarily going into an office to work because we haven't been able to. And I have a, a German AV consultant who would now consider the work space to be the new hospitality space because in many ways companies have to entice workers back into a workspace because it's no longer a given people have found out they can work perfectly well from from home how how are you seeing that trend play out yeah lots I, i mean lots lots in that um again i guess the first thing i would say about that is that there is some variation in who wants to go back to the office sooner versus later. One of the things that I think has been quite clear in this pandemic is that more junior staff have struggled more with the lockdown reality and the working from home reality than more senior staff. And there's various reasons for that. First of all, typically senior staff um, have a higher income as a consequence. They usually live in larger houses and may have a better um, option for um, home office working. And uh, and secondly, uh, more senior staff often are better connected and networked inside of the firm. So they typically have a, a higher uh, volume of calls and, and interactions with other senior leaders across the firm in a typical week. While for more junior staff, if you if you like, at, at the bottom of the command chain, sometimes you only interact with one or two people and those might be quite infrequent interactions. So there's a higher potential for isolation and there's a higher potential for working in an environment that is not ideal for home working, such as a bedroom or kitchen table or whatever so we've we've noted that um, demand for returning to the office has been perhaps a little higher in the more junior grades because um, for them it's it's simply um, more convenient more productive uh, and and a better environment also for social interactions and so that's kind of the, the I think the starting point is that based on generation income levels and home working reality there's differences in who wants to go back sooner rather than later and who's enjoyed the home working opportunities more than others. 
the other thing, of course, that this then um, relates to, if you like, is, um, like you said, well, what, what is the future reality um, for offices and how, how does that, um, you know, relate to the type of services and, and, and functions that offices might be expected to deliver in the future? And this is, I think, the really interesting question of what the new normal looks like once we do go back to normal and once the pandemic is hopefully overcome. Um, how many of the people who have worked five days a week from home at the moment want to go back five days a week to the office and how many want to continue to work from home a significant time? And I would argue that there will be a significant increase in home working versus what was happening prior to the pandemic. And as a consequence of that, the office might play a different role and, uh, and organizations that have uh, a large uh, amount of office space might be looking at well, how can we and should we reduce that um, by, you know, 20, 30, 40, even 50% in some cases to accommodate for the fact that a larger proportion of our people will be working from home. And yet many will still want to come in one, two, three days a week to interact with clients or to have that social aspect or to um, have a great meal or to utilize space for a different form of collaboration and so forth. So there may be less individual desk space. And again, more of this idea of specialist spaces, which, like you said, could mimic a little bit the hospitality sector where a better food offering, um, meal opportunities, uh, but also collaboration space and innovation space and so forth. Um, and just going back real quickly to one of your earlier points, this pandemic has definitely accelerated a lot of things. It is not only a, a pandemic where there are um, all types of sectors suffering. A few of the sectors that we are working with are absolutely thriving and typically they're sectors such as e-commerce or, or, um, or sectors that enable new forms of, of digital working. If we think about the, the transformation and the digital transformation of Arab itself, for example, our digital transformation has massively accelerated simply because we had to adopt um, systems such as Microsoft Teams and, uh, and others much quicker and in a much broader way than we would have done if this hadn't happened. And so for for our um, digital technologies teams, it's if you like, it's been both a challenge but an opportunity to uh, instill and uh, diffuse and expand digital ways of working much quicker than would have been possible through, if you like, um, a traditional change management and transformation program. I hadn't really thought about the the difference in desire to come back uh, between junior and senior people, but you make some really good points there. One of the things that we're seeing in, in say, the retail and hospitality spaces is this idea, and again, this is an accelerated trend, but this idea of creating delightful experiences and immersive experiences and using more of your senses to do that. And the idea that some of your senses, um, obviously touch is one that we think about a lot, taste and smell to some extent, have become less safe, um, seen as less safe, whereas your senses of sight and sound are kind of wireless by design. So many areas of, of business, whether it be the workspace, the hospitality space, have used sight as almost a single tool in in the sensory creation of experiences and sound now becomes this second tool that is very powerful in that it's also safe and it can be a differentiator are you seeing that more creation of experiences that entice people back into the office for things they can't do at home like as you mentioned some of them so immersive spaces um, obviously, being able to teleconference in a more 
immersive way. I mean, we're all using Zoom and Teams and, and, and Skype and everything else, but but in a more believable way. Are those some of the things that will get people back into offices? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I think it's it's perhaps slightly different in the hospitality industry because that is so experience driven, but perhaps there is a yeah, perhaps there's an argument to be made there that that could also be transferred to to the workplace much more based on this new reality um we are facing and and um certainly this, these holistic and sensory experiences are, are I would say you know now a broader aspect of of design briefs for for new offices in particular if they're headquarters or, or flagship offices or, or offices that are designed to attract a certain type of of, of employee um but um but yeah, in general, um, yeah, I'm 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 not sure how much that is playing a role at the moment. I think more important aspects will be things such as um, the right reliability of 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 technology collection connections, um, the availability of of good food and beverage and 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 the catering offering, and so some of those more fundamental things which perhaps um, people are seeking more now than than they have before because they've um, been in such a uh, uniform and monotonous state working from home for such a long time. Um, I mean, interestingly, at Arab, one of the things that has come up quite a few times in the last few weeks is how uh, how much better connections have been when you were working from home versus from the office. And now that might be a specific issue with uh, our current office provision, but it's certainly something from an AV profession challenge that needs to be addressed to ensure that look if we really want to get people back into the office we need to make sure that the technologies and 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 systems that are available in the office are at least as good if not better than what we can access at home because otherwise you know the the business case or the incentive is, is from a technology perspective is perhaps not there you mentioned about the junior and senior workers is part of that the age of the people so i was thinking as as you were talking that maybe i mean we're older people, we have families, and, and so we have this kind of social unit at home. Whereas I think of my, my teenage daughter and, and you know her life revolves around her friends more. And so being in a social space with people is is more important. Is is that something that's coming into play as well, or is it just a seniority thing? I, I think so, and I, and I don't necessarily. It's just I don't think it's just seniority. I think it's also income levels and the associated access to certain types of spaces at home. So simply having a garden office or a, a room inside of the house that you can use for a good home office is is perhaps something that people with a higher income uh, are more likely to have. Um, and then there's also, of course, the reality of being at a different stage in your career. Um, ability, need, and desire to learn new things. And that's where a lot of learning and teaching and transfer of knowledge typically doesn't necessarily happen over the phone or over a video conference, but happens when you're next to someone and talking to someone in a more casual way or even you know, having a drink or a meal with someone for that matter because um, different types of information is being shared or different types of insights are shared in, in those kind of settings. And so I think in many ways also the junior staff perhaps um, are missing those type of environments which are conductive to that kind of learning and that kind of knowledge transfer. In addition to, I think, what you rightly say, this idea of being perhaps a little bit more social and having a higher degree of desire to engage with colleagues in a social way as well than perhaps someone who 
has a family and uh, who is enjoying time with the family more than time with uh, with colleagues. Although again, that's probably not uh, uniformly the case. <laughs> yeah. In many instances, yeah. it might be the other way around. <laughs> yeah, maybe yes, yeah. I was also thinking as you were mentioning it, you know, those garden offices. Uh, you're in London. I'm in Portland. That's gonna <laughs> gonna disappear pretty soon as the rain starts. But um, yes, retreat into the uh, into the house. As we begin to to wind down, can you say uh, a little bit about the more um, immediate how tips for for people bringing people back into offices again uh, now? So we've talked more about the the long term future, but the the transition. How are you, how are you helping people to do that, and what advice do you have for people bringing back people into offices? Yeah, I guess the first thing to say there is that it really each firm has to decide its 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 own strategy there, because there is, of course, you know, issues of health and safety related to this, which are not trivial, and so um, each firm has to kind of find its own way given the type of office space they have available to them and the kind of context that they're in in terms of whether people can or, or, or can't work from home. At the moment, as a firm ourselves, we are taking a, a cautious approach. Um, we are conscious that the office should be open and available for people um, if there is a need, such as you know poor mental health from working at home or the challenge of working at home or just, you know, yeah, broader needs around health and well-being to to um, to work in the office. So we are supporting that, if you like, um, as much as possible, and ensuring that um, people have the space and and services available to them um, to them that they need, which is which is really really important. And in general, then it just comes down to the basics, to having uh, clear communications, um, clear guidance on what is expected for people who are in the office in this current environment. Um, to ensure that the space is adequately adapted, that the cleaning regimes are adapted, that the spaces are adequately signposted and that there's clear rules around how you should move across the office. So, for example, we encourage people to bring their own lunch so they don't necessarily have to make use of the catering service. If you do use a catering service, you have to book a time and you have to order your food in advance just to minimize the chance of people congregating mask wearing inside of offices when you move around uh, desks that are socially distanced and, and and so forth in many ways all of the basics that we would also see and expect in the hospitality industry and 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 other parts while still allowing people to to somehow have this interaction of seeing each other and meeting with each other and chatting with each other yeah it's really about getting the basics right making sure that people follow the rules as much as possible making sure there's clear guidance um, while at the same time trying to bring back some of the things that make the office um, the place it should be around social interaction and uh, catering offering and people being able to speak to each other in person. But like I said, we as a firm are taking a, a cautious approach. It does vary a bit from uh, geography to geography. Um, some of our offices in East Asia are, are much more open than they have been. And there we've got, for example, a rotor where half of the team might be in one day and half of the team might be in another day. Um, in the UK, our offices are, are still a bit less occupied. It's a bit more of an on-demand situation where people can go in if they want to, but we're, we're highly cautious due to the um, increased caseloads we're seeing across the world and also the impacts that we have on how risky it is or not to actually travel to the office in the first place because it's often not necessarily the office environment which is the problem that can be quite easily designed to be relatively safe or, or very safe even 
it's often the commute and the interactions that happen between the home and the office that can be more risky in some instances, depending on whether you have to or not take public transport. Um, so that's that's another consideration there. This has been fascinating. You you've mentioned a few things I hadn't even thought about. Do you have any last uh, comments, things you'd, you'd like to say before we wrap up? I mean, for those working in the AV industry, I would um, encourage you all to be hopeful. Um, I, I mean, in many ways, these crises always spur immense opportunities for innovation as well. And uh, I guess with everything being so up in the air and so uncertain, and uh, there is also an opportunity to to reshape things and reframe them, things and, and rethink things. Um, perhaps like never before. And so uh, I, I think there's many people and companies out there who are looking for interesting and innovative ideas and, and solutions. And I would encourage everyone in the industry to be proactive there and to, and, and to reach out and to see whether there are opportunities for innovation and doing things differently and to to make the most of the opportunity that the crisis brings, if you like. Thank you. Um, so how do people who want to learn more about what Foresight uh, does or maybe contact you or your team directly, how do they get in touch with you? Yeah, so there's a few things. So um, uh, there's a, a website, foresight.arab.com, where we have most of our um, publications free to download and, and, and contact details. Or you can email us at foresight.arab.com. Uh, the last thing perhaps worth sharing is that uh, we also have a database of uh, case studies and insights and innovation from all across the world. It's not just Arab stuff. It's actually predominantly stuff by other people. And there's actually lots of case studies and exemplars and innovations also that are AV related. And that's our Inspire database. And that's accessible at inspire.arab.com. And that's uh, free to join and free to use and a great tool for innovation and creative thinking. And again, if you want to learn more about that, just uh, email me at four site at arab.com and i'd be very happy to have a conversation with you thanks so much i'm certainly going to look at some of those resources that sounds fascinating thank you joseph that was great for all of you listeners here please uh, help us if you can by leaving comments uh, rating the podcast and please come back and visit other episodes both from this series and the previous series they're available at bluesoundprofessional.com under the uh, Surroundscapes area in that website. So thank you very much and hope, to, hope you'll come back and hear some more episodes. <laughs>